So seven grams. Dude, that's, that is a huge – if you take the exercising one, that is insane. Like how much glucose you're going to be able to clear. Let's see. What, yeah, for the exercising one, 22.8 milligrams, like 1.4 grams per hour, hour per kilo. Yeah. That's insane. So like even for these guys who supposedly have like 30-something 30, 30 kilos of muscle – right? You're, you're talking 40 or 50 grams of glucose an hour during exercise. And then if you actually make it a reasonably muscled human being, you know, that's going to be even more. Yeah. That's about right though, actually. If you, if you think of during exercise, once you go above 40 to 50 grams of carbohydrate per hour, you start to see problems like the gut won't take up much more. So maybe actually gut uptake during exercise and muscle uptake during exercise are fairly well matched, which would make sense, wouldn't it? Speaking of which, for this episode of Bro Research Radio with Dr. Tommy Wood, I have prepared adequately by not reading any of the citations. <laughs> and I have instead eaten 140 grams of carbohydrates. <laughs> and we're going to see what my blood glucose is. I did about 25 sets of some hard work, so we're going to see what how diabetic i am how long ago uh, about i say about about an hour maybe a little bit oh 107 take that motherfuckers it's pretty good it's all right. yeah 140 grams of glucose so a lot of people don't really understand like what that means uh, and and so these these numbers don't mean a lot to them but diabetes is after 75 grams you'd be at 140 um, and like 126 fasting. And so what we've seen in a lot of muscle bound individuals is just an insane ability to dispose of glucose. Um, and we're going to jump into a couple research papers today. One, one, this, this, the reason I wanted to have Tommy on the show is because this, this paper just came out that was, um, we don't generally have exercise trials, unfortunately don't generally have a lot of money. Um, yeah. And so this trial had an intravenous glucose tolerance test, which has its negatives, but it is, you know, that's like a thousand dollars per person type of test. Um, and so what it was a really interesting study design. I'll just share my screen and we're going to, we're going to jam on this and then we'll, we'll, uh, that's that Ronnie paper. And so they had, they had these people come in and they, it was uh, it was aerobic exercise. It wasn't resistance training, and they had them essentially exercise off a twenty percent deficit or a forty percent deficit, and then they looked at an IVGTT, an intravenous glucose tolerance test, the next day. And uh, they, I mean, this this study had a lot. They they used a metabolic cart to figure out RMR, um, and then they they really the finding is pretty interesting and you can kind of extrapolate more on this is they didn't find much with the um, dietary restriction. So essentially they were testing what happens when you exercise off 20 or 40% of a deficit and then compared to what happens when you eat at a 20 to 40% deficit and kind of this in the functional medicines fear. One of the big things we have is like, okay, if, if you're at an, if you're in a deficit, you're probably going to, uh, increase your metabolic health, but acutely that doesn't necessarily look to be the case. It's more probably changing body composition over time. Um, and so they had this insulin pop here, which is, and I, you can help me with, because this is your area of expertise. They're giving them boluses of in insulin right here, right? No, this is just an intravenous glucose tolerance test. So that's the insulin that they're producing in response to the glucose. That's what I thought too. But look at so a glucose bolus of eleven point four grams. I think this uh, is like yeah. for height, and then they're they're. That's why that's why I don't I don't know how to extrapolate this. Yeah, you're right. So the first bump you see that's their endogenous one, and the second bump is with the exogenous insulin, right? So you see that first Ooh. bump. Yeah, so they're already at 150, and it's 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 also like good to say like these people they're quote unquote healthy, but they're not they're they're already pretty metabolically deranged. Yeah, so what and this is the point that it's one of the, it's the reason why they did the intravenous one, and they make the point in the discussion that the oral glucose tolerance test would potentially be more 
like real life because then you get things like GIP, GLP-1. You get the incretins from the gut involved, which stimulate insulin production or, or modulate insulin production. But then they couldn't look because they wanted to do two tests. They wanted to in one mm-hmm. go. So that's looking at the endogenous response to insulin. And then like if you shove a lot of insulin into the system, like how does the body respond to that? So they did, they did both at the same time, which is why they did it intravenously. That's right. And really the, the only significant finding here was this acute insulin response uh, went down with exercise um, and also with diet, but it went down with diet because they just, yeah, they just weren't eating as much carbohydrates, uh, which you would expect. And then the, this is kind of their, their other main finding was that the, the SI or the effectiveness of glucose went up, which is glucose sensitivity. Um, but, only, but only in exercise. Only in exercise, which is, and, which, it, which is big. But in the diet one, particularly at 40% deficit, there's that actually there's less of a disposal index and less of an efficiency of glucose stimulated uh, glucose uptake. So that's kind of, you're basically reducing um, like the relative amount of glucose that's taken up into muscles. And like, you know that if you're in a chronic caloric deficit, you do have some degrees of peripheral insulin resistance to try and spare glucose um, for the brain particularly. So I think that's what you're starting to see there, but you don't get that when it's induced by exercise, at least not acutely. That was my, that was my big question, because it seems like, like if you go vegan, you're going to have this down regulation of your ability to digest protein. And so the same thing seems to be happening when you when you back off on calories, right? You have this down regulation of your of your insulin secretion, and this and then you also are starting to spare glucose for your brain and other organs. Um, and so, what what I've seen anecdotally is some people that go keto, they they kind of mess up their ability to deal with carbohydrates. And, and I think that would come back just like if you're vegan, it, your ability to digest meat protein comes back, but you can't just, you can't just eat a steak and think everything's going to be okay right away. Would you there's agree? A, there's a part. Yeah, yeah. So this part, so this is that it kind of comes up with that other re- review paper that, that you have. And, and, they, and they do talk a bit about this, um, particularly in um, relation to glycogen levels and appetite. The, the ability to spare muscle glycogen is, and the use of muscle glycogen seems to improve after a period of keto adaptation. So I think some, yes, you will see an acute deficit, but some of that may come back. Um, and I think it's also going to be related to the intensity of the exercise that you're doing. So the intent, so if you're thinking about the amount of carbohydrate that you're shuttling through glycolysis and then into the mitochondria, uh, acutely on a ketogenic diet, um, or even you might see like a down regulation of pyruvate dehydrogenase, you know, so less shuttling mm-hmm. of pyruvate um, into the mitochondria from like glucose and glycolysis. But uh, PDH is upregulated by intense exercise. So I think if you're, if you're worried about your metabolic flexibility on a ketogenic diet, I think you can offset some of that by making sure you're actually doing high intensity exercise. Um, but when you're thinking about um, all of this from an appetite uh, regulation standpoint, uh, which is that, that other paper, the one that you've got up now, I think some that they're worried that um, if you're on a low carbohydrate diet, you have lower leptin levels. And if you have lower leptin levels, you might, you know, lower leptin um, is, is going to make you hungrier, essentially, right? You're going to try and regain um, caloric, um, caloric balance. Um, and some of that is tied into your ability to use fat versus carbohydrate during exercise. So if you are a carbohydrate dominant athlete, i.e. you do not have true metabolic flexibility, the more likely it seems you are to eat all of the Oreos after you've worked out because you're super hungry afterwards. But if you are more metabolically flexible, you're able to use more fat during exercise, you actually have less of that. So people who are better trained, have more metabolic flexibility, are better able to regulate their appetite. Um, And they're glycogen sparing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So all of that comes from training but if you go you know in terms of your dietary extremes um and you know remove carbohydrates from the diet you you'll gain you can gain some of that back it just requires an adaptation period so just it's different ways to to skin a similar cat yeah and you kind of see that in a lot of the low carb they're doing a lot of carbohydrate bunching like even if they're low carb outside they're they're trying to train they're training training low competing high like stuff like that they're not just all the time keto um, yeah. 
maybe if you're an ultra, but then you're never even worried about carbohydrate metabolism really anyways, because you're staying at such a low, you're at 60% or whatever you're, you know, you're, you're under that threshold where you would even use carbohydrates. Well, I mean, eat, eat, well, the, the best, truly the best keto endurance athletes, when they're doing high volume training, they eat carbohydrates and still stay in ketosis, right? They can mm. eat several hundred grams of carbohydrates and stay in ketosis. That's the, around the training or yeah, around training, around training, even throughout, even throughout the day. Like wow. if, if they're, so if they're doing an enduro bike race or, you know, multi-day ultra marathon, if they, if they have that carbohydrate either during or around the actual bout of exercise, the next morning they're like bang back into ketosis. So, you know, you can still, and that's probably because all of that glucose is going straight to the muscles. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but one of, one interesting thing about this, this, this paper we were talking about um, with the glucose uptake, but with the different caloric deficits is that, and this is what, this is where I get really annoyed by the way that people display their data in, in, in papers. So you, you're like, you're trying to understand who these people are, right? Like mm -hmm. what, what are they like? And if you look at, so what they, what they give you in table, is it table one is like your, um, your right, basic table, facts, right? Table yeah, two, like table two is their basic demographics. Yeah. So like basic demographics, um, actually most of it's listed in the text. Yeah, so it's like 18 to 30 BMI. It's like the BMI stuff. range is 18 to 30, but on average it's 20.9 and 22.5 in the in the exercise and diet groups. And then I'm like, um, and it's about it's roughly you know this and there's men and women. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then you're like, well, what does that mean? So they give us you know, they give us the BMI and they give us the percent body fat. So these guys are 20 to 22.5 BMI on average, and over 30 percent body fat. So like, and but they don't tell us how they don't tell us how much they weigh, and they don't tell us um, how how tall they are. So I went and I was like, so the average Korean, so I went and looked this up. <laughs> average Korean female is five foot four, male is five foot nine. So I like guesstimate, like on average, these people are like five foot seven, right? And already we're working in averages, which means that it's telling you nothing. But based on that calculation, um, the FFMIs of these guys are somewhere between fifteen and sixteen point five on average, right? That's like almost negative muscle mass. Yeah, well, if they have, if they're females, that's not, that's still but we don't terrible. Know. Like well, we, their the breakdown was 10 to three, right? Their breakdown was 10, it was 10, there's more, 22 women and 10 men. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, so they're like, so it's like a third to two thirds. Yeah. That, that that always like i understand that we we want to have both sexes in but that just makes data presentation so convoluted when you have males and females mixed together and you don't present the data separated well it's all you need to do is just i mean you have 22 people you can give us all the data for each person right yeah put it, put it in a supplement and then actually we then you and i can go okay let's find somebody either a male or female who has the body composition of somebody who's the kind of person that we're used to dealing with that we're interested in. And then we can look at their data, right? Whereas with this, it's just such a mixed bag um, of metabolic health, body composition that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, um, but it's just really difficult to know how to- Did you just that. say that you don't care about five, four Korean women? Is that what you just said? <laughs> Did you that's just say that on the internet? That's really, that's really not what I said. I'm, I'm a big fan. No, I can't say that either. <laughs> no, um, can't say that either. You just got to be quiet. This is, the, <laughs> this is the age we live in. Um, no, so, so I, I think you, you bring up a big point. Is these, these, these subjects are incredibly under-muscled. We know that, you know, 91% of Americans are over fat. And then, you know, if you, if you put in like metabolically healthy, maybe there's like 1% of people who are metabolically healthy and have enough muscle mass per yeah. our, for our recommendations. Um, and so the, we're, we're extrapolating out a ton because we don't have the data in, in the population that we primarily serve. Um, That's a better way of putting it. Yes. Um, my wife has been coaching me up on how to talk in a politically <laughs> correct manner uh, <laughs> because otherwise it would be terrible. Uh, and so the, we're, we, you and I were bantering back and forth via text messages because what we see in the research is, is they, can, they, they always compare resistance training to say aerobic training for diabetes regulation for di in, in diabetics or people who are already metabolically dysregulated. And what they see is there's no difference acutely. Mm -hmm. 
And like, so this is really interesting to me. So you have this unhealthy population and if you get them exercising, they get better metabolically. But, um, and, and for weight loss, this is really, this is, this is why exercise is kind of a non, you have to do it because otherwise you're going to lose muscle mass and you're not probably going to get that same metabolic benefit. But if we think about our population with the accruement of muscle mass, you essentially should be able to dispose of more and more and more glucose. And why this is interesting is those, those, uh, those like eight week or 10 week studies in metabolically deranged individuals, you will see muscle mass gain from just aerobic exercise mm-hmm. in those first t- 10 to 12 weeks. So are you really comparing apples to apples in that sense? Or are, is, is it what happens when, you know, someone trains for three years and they put on, you know, three years, you, you might be able to put on legit 10 kilos of muscle. Um, a guy, a female may be able to put on five to eight kilos of muscle in two, two to three years. And we did the math and that is not exercising. That's like four grams an hour of, of more glucose that you're essentially going to be able to get rid of and exercising. What was it? That's like 20, almost 14, 15 grams of glucose that you could potentially get rid of by adding muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, and so we talked about this, my glucose level was 107 milligrams per deciliter. The difference, you have about five liters of blood flowing around in your veins and arteries. And so the difference between uh, diabetes and so an 85, so being quote unquote healthy and then diabetes is two grams. And so if someone has the ability to dispose of you know, 14, 15 extra grams of glucose in two hours, that, that is an insane amount in terms of, and, and we're, that's the thing that we kind of want to look at is when you look at, when you essentially analyze people who are muscle bound, uh, it's, you kind of get to just flip the switch and see how much glucose they can dispose of instead of seeing, Oh, how, how fragile are they? There's, discussion of this uh of this uh, korean paper where they talk about how you can very quickly lose the mm-hmm. insulin sensitivity by being sedentary so there's there's a there's definitely a, an effect of not only do you need we talked a little bit about this on the, on the last episode i think is like not only do you need a good amount of muscle mass but you actually need to make sure that you continue to use that right? That you're not, you know, you can't just be super stacked and lay around all day. Um, and otherwise you'll lose that insulin sensitivity that, that, that muscle muscle mass should otherwise afford you. And that's, that's another thing, like anecdotally people, some, for some reason, always ask other people, like they care, like what I do. Um, like it's, and so and I'm sure they care. People care about like what you do as an individual. We, as scientists, we don't really care about that stuff. Uh, we find it interesting for like hi- driving hypothesis, but like I, I'm already at 9,000 steps a day. Uh, I woke up at 4 a.m. to like carry a baby around. Um, yeah. So like my, I'm probably not only, and I, not only did I train, but I'm moving around a lot. Um, and I'm just pretty hyper in general, which is kind of annoying for a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> so, so we're, if, but if you're at a desk, like I think if you, if you don't have a lot of muscle, and you sit at a desk all day and you ate 140 grams of glucose, like that's not going to go well. Uh, and then honestly, that's like probably a couple cupcakes, if, yeah. if, if, which is scary to me. Like, so if you're in an office and you just pounded a couple cupcakes, you could be in, you know, just blowing glucose out of your kidneys. Yeah, literally you would go, you would go over what, 180 when you then start to milligrams of deciliter, we then start to lose the ability to, to uh, reuptake all that, all of it. Um, yeah, that's just like it's the donut. It's the donut that your coworker brought in. I mean, I do partake in the donuts that people bring in, but then I go and do squats afterwards, so I justify it that way. Well, I, I don't think that you have like the point is you don't have you don't have we don't I don't worry about carbohydrates like this. No. It's never a worry for me. Like if if someone if someone wants to like eat an entire peanut butter pie, I'll be like, yeah, let's do let's take our glucose. Let's see what happens. And it, it's not even good. It's not even good. Like I, there couldn't anecdotally for me, there could not be a worse time to te- test my blood glucose. I've been trying to eat at a hypercaloric setting for like three months straight. I'm eating four RX bars a day, two bags of chips. Like it's terrifying. 
Um, and, and I still can't gain weight. Um, so maybe I got to stop being so hyper. Uh, yeah, you got to stop those 9,000 <laughs> steps a day. No, I'm at, I'm at 13, 9,000 by, 9, by noon. Um, yeah, for sure. So if you, but then part of me is like, okay, am I just going to gain fat then? Um, maybe, but that could be advantageous. I don't even really, cause I'm not gaining weight consistently. I, I might not even be in a caloric excess, which is, which is a pre, like I'm probably necessary for me to put on muscle. Yeah. Which is, which, uh, which is not the point just, of just, this podcast. I think you need more, you need more peanut butter pies. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in. Uh, peanut butter is quite expensive here. I probably just need to, I probably need to just start facing bananas, just like 10 bananas at a time. <laughs> See how many bananas I can put in a smoothie. Um, the, so the, the main finding from this, this Korean paper was that they found um, the, more, the more exercise you did, the more, insulin the more insulin sensitive you are, the better you were able to use insulin to dispose of glucose. But they did not see the same thing with diet. Um, yeah. And so that, and if you look at all the research, you probably, to me, it's pretty clear that you don't just want to diet without exercise. Like that's a recipe for disaster. If you're just gonna, if you know you're getting 3,000 steps and you're trying to diet and you're an office worker without exercise, I think you're just gonna lose muscle and then you're gonna, with the, with the collateral fattening effect where your body's gonna eat to try to bring back the amount of muscle that you had, it's just gonna be bad news bears um, over the long term. And so, but this other paper that, that's kind of related to this, but is, is really weird. Um, I think for a lot of people, this idea that that glycogen could be a regulator of appetite control. Um, and then I found this, I found this kind of fact fascinating is that, and I've seen this, I've definitely seen this anecdotally in, in people who are pretty well muscled. Um, and p even just people who exercise a lot is they're fasting. They need to eat often. Their fasting appetite goes up and their explanation for this is your liver glycogen utilization rate is you own your liver glycogen essentially doesn't go up from exercising, but your mm -hmm. muscle glycogen does. And so you're repleting that. And so you're going to use your liver glycogen faster. Um, is there anything else? Is there anything you found super this is more of a hypothesis type paper or a, almost like a narrative review. Uh, anything you found super interesting in this paper? Yeah, that, the, uh, yeah, the main thing was why I was, uh, um, yeah, uh, talking about earlier in that, you know, particularly if you're, if you're trying to use, um, exercise as, as part of a way as part of a fat loss strategy, then, doing whatever you can to become metabolically flexible is really important. You want to be able to use more fat during exercise so that you spare, um, you spare glycogen stores relatively. Um, you, you have less reliance on um, gluconeogenesis during exercise because you're able to use fat stores. And then those are the people who seem to not super compensate for the calories burned by exercise. Um, after after exercise, I definitely know. So, from the people that I've worked with, and also myself, I have, and I know that I am actually is where I eat a load of food. You know, so if I, if I put myself into a caloric excess, I find it like for, I find it really hard to keep that going. Right, I'm just not hungry anymore, um, and that's not the case for people who are in a caloric excess, but, but a sedentary. Mm. That's also mentioned mm. in that paper, right? That again, they are less well able to, to, to regulate appetite. Uh, but if I am using uh, carbohydrates as, as the main chunk of my, um, uh, of my caloric excess, it's easier for me to, it's easier for me to maintain that, right? I, I get hungrier. Um, mm. So I've, I've definitely seen that in, in, in people who come and they're trying to gain weight or get you know gain uh, muscle mass particularly, or just gain weight in general, and who are eating a relatively low carb diet. If you add carbohydrates into the diet, they seem to be hungrier. They're definitely like in the mornings that you know they're definitely hungrier when they when they've been fasted for a period of time. So that I mean, that's probably similar to, to to what you were saying. I've certainly noticed that. That's a strategy. If you're trying to gain weight 
and you're struggling on a lower carbohydrate diet, and it can be done. Again, we talked about this last time, right? But if you're if you're struggling to get those calories in, then adding in carbohydrates can seem to increase appetite. I think you know you spend a lot of time trying to you know trying to figure out where glucose is going and coming from, right? And I think at least based on the data that exists, you know, there's 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 a definite um, rationale for saying that you know adding a kilo of muscle will significantly increase the amount of glucose that you're able to dispose of um and that's you know i mean that's that's the whole game for a lot of you know metabolic health and long-term health right so and that's what i don't think we're seeing in a lot of these you know these 16 week or or even six month trials like that's i if i think of the order of order of operations in which we research this right it would be first cross-sectionally let's compare people with an ffmi of 24 to males you probably just use you could use males or females it didn't matter but females with an ffmi of 21 or 22 compared to females with an ffmi of 15 same 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 age same things like that um you could even honestly like from a study design perspective you would probably want them to be like the same almost like the same body fat percentage so like you don't you'd want them to like so an ffmi of 25 and 10 percent body fat versus an ffmi of 18 and 10 percent body fat and so you'd compare, you'd compare those two subjects and then you'd look at, say, an OGTT and you'd look at their ability to clear glucose. Um, and that would, be, that would be really interesting. So if we were going to design a study, we'd probably want the same. And we could, th- I think finding that's going to be really hard. Finding dudes who are 10% body fat and an FFMI of 18, that might be hard to find them. Um, so that would be the ideal cross actually oh isn't that that's like your traditional millennial hipster right they're everywhere yeah we could we could just put they're 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 either ffmi of 18 and 10 percent body fat or they're you know have a bmi of 30 and pre-diabetes yeah that's like the the americano guy versus like the the three shot sugar latte guy at the hipster coffee shop so we just we just got to put up the we just got to put the flyer at the hipster coffee shop and (laughs) the recruitment flyer put at the hipster coffee shop and then we'll put it at the gym Uh, you know like i remember a couple of years ago i went out onto the high street to try and buy some pants american pants not british pants so like jeans um and like literally not even extra large or whatever like waist 34 inch i couldn't even get my feet into them right so there must be enough of these guys in that in that arena for 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 them to exist as a study population because they certainly don't make they don't make pants for people like me or you on the high street (laughs) so so i this is this is i think our our challenge for the for the next year is is i'm down to throw money at this it's probably it's not gonna be that expensive but this is kind of the first step in, in kind of, of turning not i don't think we're ever going to be able to turn this research around but like look at more of an anti-fragility model and compare these let's just call it what it is let's compare emo hipsters to you know <laughs> jacked bodybuilders and look at and look at their ability to deal with 200 grams of gummy bears like <laughs> that's, that's what i want just the, the title of the paper Gummy bear clearance by emo hipsters versus, versus body. bodybuilders. Yes, yes, versus um, versus versus thunderjacked individuals. Uh, so that let's. I think the from a study design point, point standpoint, that's where you'd start, um, and then probably not that sexy of a study design for us would be to look at that same person. Oh, the next step in the study design would be would be looking at what happens when you add 10 to 15 kilos of muscle mass to the emo hipster. Uh, and so that would be the follow-up study to our cross-sectional study. You probably missed me right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I said the follow-up study to our, you know, so we have, we're, we're really thinking in the future here um, at Bro Research Radio. So we're going to, not we want to be inclusive not exclusive um so we want to be more like my wife less like us um and so we're gonna our first study is we're gonna you know we're gonna have the us versus them so we're gonna have we test the emo hipsters versus the jack bodybuilders 
uh, cross actually, and then, then of course, because we know which one of those groups is better. We're gonna, we're gonna then say the guy aiming for exclusive for inclusivity. Inclusive. No, no. So, so this is how we're gonna be more inclusive. Well, then the next. So then we're gonna obviously gotta progress to a longitudinal study of design. So our next study is to get the emo hipsters more jacked, and then see that's the that's the study that's. That is the study of designs, and you already have the recruitment population. So then we just forget about we forget about the jacked, you know, the thunderjacked individuals. We're like, you already got it, you're good. Go and go about your peanut butter pie, and then we get we we show the emo hipsters that they cannot dispose of 200 grams of gummy bears very well, and then they ask us, how can we dispose of 200 grams of gummy bears more better so that we're not as sad, <laughs> and then and then we subsequently help them gain muscle mass. And then they subsequently can't go shopping um, at these streets in Seattle um, that I've never been to. But uh, it sounds it sounds as nice. Um, well, if you you're going to Portland soon, right? If you try and go clothes shopping, you'll probably struggle. I'm not going to Portland. Uh, oh, you're not. You're staying at home. Uh, no, I'm not staying at home either. I'm going to the Midwest. Um, so I'm. It's, it's always a little bit. It's always a little bit hard for me to go to the Midwest. Like I fly in, and I'm just like, because in, in Costa Rica, I'm, I'm not. I mean no one's i mean there are some aggressively big people still mm-hmm. um they're they exist for sure but not i get lulled to sleep because there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of work here a lot of manual labor and so there's still people are still pretty pretty healthy yeah. um but i go back to wisconsin it's 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 pretty i'm like wow this is this is it like this is this is 99 percent of people are in dire straits um and so there's a lot of, and that's why I understand, I, I go back and I kind of understand, okay, like this is why the literature is the way it is. Um, yeah. Like that's the, that's the population that you're working with. Right. Unfortunately. Um, and they're getting older. Like it's, it's, it's really, you think about the, the, not to be too pessimistic and I know you're there too, but like there's more people on this planet that are over the age of 65 than are under now. And so you combine age with the loss of muscle mass, which set with sedentary activity, man, that's just, that's just scary. The like ability to dispose of gummy bears, <laughs> not good, not good. Especially if you're, you know, a five core four Korean lady. Um, a lot of people may not know this, but uh, unlike myself, you are a fancy doctor and you work at a fancy place and you do fancy things. Uh, and so I, I've been wanting to ask you this question for a while is we have this textbook pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes. And I know this is something that you feel strongly about. And I'm, I'm really, really excited to, to kind of hear you dive into it. But we potentially we have this first thing that happens is you get this inability to deal with large amounts of glucose, or you get metabolically inflexible in that direction. Second thing that happens is now all of a sudden you you know you need more insulin, so your beta cells start secreting more insulin, and then and then they blow out, uh, and then you get NAFL and, and and kind of you get this this downstream effects, and then also you get the now even the textbooks are talking about this with alpha cell. Uh, insulin resistance now you're gonna get excessive glucagon secretion and so if, do you want to just play that out for us like that pathogenesis like how does someone really get type 2 diabetic yeah definitely i, I think um there are probably three you have three main players in, in this and and the, the three being um well pr- I mean, you should probably include four, so the liver. So it's the gut, the liver, the muscle tissue, and, and the fat tissue. And that's is probably an intersection between all four of those. And where things start to go wrong might be different from person to person. Certainly, uh, there's been a lot of talk about loss of skeletal muscle tissue um, insulin sensitivity, and that being you know, where things start to fall apart. And I don't think that's like the main crux of things, but it's certainly very important. You know, We've talked about that already. The amount of muscle tissue that you have and remaining active, you know, has a huge amount to do with how much glucose you can dispose of. You know, your your systemic insulin sensitivity. Um, a real a key player seems to be how sensitive your your fat tissue is to insulin. Like how much fat, you know, if, if you measure it either in a human or in um, or in animals, how much glucose can your adipose tissue take up? So your adipose tissue insulin sensitivity 
um, if you if you sort of knock that out, say in a mouse, like you become almost instantly diabetic. Um, so the the insulin sensitivity of your adipose tissue is crucial, and that is um, determined by a number of factors. So kind of there's still debate on on how you know how much this is the main issue, but you have some people talk about what we call a, a personal factor much fat tissue can you accumulate before your fat tissue becomes insulin resistant and starts to say no more i can't take any more fat i can't take any more energy like i'm at maximum storage capacity um, and that's partly determined uh, genetically so caucasians seem to be able to accumulate the most fat mass before they become systemically insulin resistant and then other uh, so if you think about um indians some southeast asian uh populations they get type 2 diabetes at a much lower uh bmi or you know a much a le you know they can be less fat before they become before they become systemically insulin resistant and then when you're in that state then your fat which is your buffer essentially for excess caloric intake you know that's no longer available to you and then you essentially start to start to shove stuff wherever you can and then it ends up in the muscle tissue, ends up in the liver, ends up in the pancreas. That's where you start to see um, problems with beta cell burnout. Um, and during this whole process, you're starting to secrete more and more insulin to try and basically shove substrate wherever you can. Um, and insulin resistance uh, in the tissues also results in insulin resistance you know, in the pancreas. So then that's where you have large amounts of glucagon, which is then telling your liver to make loads of glucose, even though you don't need it. And your insulin-resistant fat tissue, um, because the insulin is no longer insulin-sensitive, insulin isn't holding the fat in. It's you know it's there for substrate partitioning, and so then you have in insulin-resistant adipose tissue you have higher turnover of, of, of fat. So basically, free fatty acids and and glycerol are sort of spilling out of your adipose tissue, particularly the visceral fat. That's going to the liver. The liver has upregulated gluconeogenesis inappropriately because it's also insulin resistant and is exposed to a lot of glucagon. So you start to make a load of glucose in the liver inappropriately because you're. This can almost have a, a, a feed forward effect. And you can obviously overcome some of it by injecting exogenous insulin, you know, but you're just going to keep getting, you know, fatter and fatter, even though the, the body doesn't want to. Um, the. the one key sort of player in this then is is the gut and we, we mentioned briefly the the incretins um and things like uh, glp1 increase endogenous insulin secretion which helps to maintain glycemic control and you lose proper incretin production in in the setting of metabolic disease um and an interesting thing is that the fastest way to reverse type 2 diabetes is to give somebody a gastric bypass uh, which is basically where um, you rearrange the stomach um, and those and and surgically and those people basically um, reverse their loss of normal increase in function almost overnight and they're in um, so that tells you that uh, incretins and gut function are you know directly tied um, into metabolic health um, when you then try and think of, of of other ways right you know if you are insulin resistant you don't necessarily want to have a, a gastric bypass um so lowering carbohydrate intake can certainly help you are if you're insulin resistant you are carbohydrate intolerant so that can certainly control the symptoms and in some people can result in in full reversal of the disease if it's if it results in if it results in a long-term caloric deficit which is at that point what you need you need to remove the substrate from your stores so that you you have that buffer back um and uh roy taylor has done he's in the uk has done some studies with um liquid hypocaloric diets in people with type 2 diabetes and if they manage to get rid of ectopic fat and recover pancreatic function which happens in a, in a proportion of people in the in the responders they get also go into remission of type 2 diabetes um the next step though is is uh looking at other things that might be causing the problem you know outside of just a pure caloric excess and we know that systemic inflammation infection that certainly results in insulin resistance there are you know other toxic exposures which might result 
um, in insulin resistance, uh, chronic stress is another one. So this is where the, the functional medicine paradigm can become useful because you know if you just put somebody into a caloric deficit or you restrict their carbohydrate intake and they don't see dramatic improvements in metabolic health or you know you, you try and help them gain some mu some muscle mass and that doesn't seem to be doing the trick then there's there's you know using a, a functional integrative medicine approach to figure out other things that, that might be affecting um insulin sensitivity um is really important and i think that's that's the one thing that this, this kind of missing um, you, you know, even though we're, we're starting to see low carbohydrate diets and maybe hypocaloric diets in mainstream medicines to try and reverse types of diabetes, very few people are actually successfully increasing muscle mass on, on, a, on a population scale. Um, and then there's always going to be uh, you know, people, you know, you're missing other things that are going on, uh, such as, you know, systemic um, systemic inflammation that might be affecting insulin sensitivity. Um, so it's just worth remembering that just just because reducing carbs can can you know make you look less diabetic it doesn't mean you actually solve the original problem yeah kind of just treating symptoms with food it, interesting interesting too when you said that i immediately thought okay well yeah you also have the if you have you know chronic inflammation going on your ability to put on muscle is going to be blunted as well so you're yeah, going to you're going to be hurt so you're hurting from all angles and and the only and so that's kind of the play is if there is some kind of, you know, smoldering inflammatory response, none of these, like what we're talking, this is like, it's always good. We, a lot of us kind of get entrenched and that's kind of the problem with, you know, the fancy academia. Um, and not, I think it's getting better. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not a pessimist by any means. And I think that like people are getting more interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary. Um, and I definitely saw that when I was, when I was in academia um, and so the problem is we get entrenched in our viewpoint and then we don't like, we don't get out of it. And so if, if you think hypochloric is the thing, then you, you just miss muscle. And then if you think if, if, if you're like me and everything's muscle, then you're super muscle centric and you didn't, you know, you didn't put your head out of your trench and like, Oh man, this could, this could be, this could be a chronic inflammatory issue and has nothing. To, and that's blunting my ability to put on muscle and that's blunting my ability to lose fat. And, and that's why I'm insulin resistant, or that's, a, that's part of the reason. So, uh, that, that's super, super interesting. And, and so you're, you're gonna, you're gonna be down here in March jamming on, I think you're one day, day two, you're talking for, um, you're presenting for 90 minutes and, and you're going to present, kind of go into a lot deeper you're going to present on this model and then day day three you're presenting again and uh i had the pleasure of reviewing one of your uh I, is that impressed yet or no no so I, I just uh i just submitted it and then i put a preprint um up so that it was just online so people could read it but yeah it's i'm, I'm working on getting it published currently and so you're gonna day three you're gonna talk about what you've been kind of working on on the the phenotypic and slash genetic side yeah and what that'll be <laughs> you, want that, to get, you want me to talk about that i, I um, mean i mean it's super like i i read the paper and i and i've i haven't bought into like the i don't want to call it like i'm not going to throw out any names out uh but there's a lot of there's a lot of acronyms in the functional medicine world that are very like predeterministic based on yeah. your genetic profiles yeah uh, and i've always i've always like been super squeamish about anybody trying to tell me a super like a super simple story with like things that just look sciencey enough yeah uh, and i think that's where you did a really good job of like because it because you get a lot of scare tactics like i'm, I'm like people people come to me like so scared yeah uh, and it's not warranted it's, no this and th this is the thing and, and i kind of until i really dug into it and, and again it, it requires you know if you apply just basic statistical theory um and like when when we're there i'm talking about this I'll, I'll sort of lay that out but when you just if you have any idea of how statistic works and then you look at the papers that people are using to and and yeah so the kind of um you know the the kind of thing you hear is that like if your mthfr isn't working properly right like that's that, that's that's the most common thing so then basically based on a genetic test somebody is telling you that some enzyme in, like just to begin with that doesn't make any sense but then when you start to look at the actual data on this stuff it's super variable from person to person like what 
you know, their enzyme function is, whether that actually translates into a change in phenotype, right? And that's what we care about. We care about the phenotype, right? The actual physical things you can measure on the person, like their blood glucose level or their homocysteine level or, you know, how tall they are or how fat they are or how diabetic they are, their blood, you know. And all of those things you can measure. And if you then look at how tightly genetics, you know, the, the most common genes that you might measure on like 23andMe, um, if you look at how those uh, actually relate to final phenotype, it's so variable and the effect is so small that you may as well just not even bother thinking about it. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole sort of like step-by-step -step process that I kind of put together just based on basic statistical theory. And you can kind of just see, you can, you can make these nice graphs, you can look at it and think, you know, how much is this actually likely to affect me? How much should I worry about this? And for many, many things, like the, the things that are, be are best uh, understood and the genes that have been most widely studied, like most of them, the environment, the environment dominates. Like the effect of genetics is, is so small that, again, it's, it's probably not even worth worrying about. Yeah, I think I, the, I, I can't remember who posted this study, but it was like the, the idea of like genetics predetermining your ability to lose weight. And it was like genetics made up like two to three percent. Yeah. of of your ability to lose weight and so I, I i anytime someone tries to sell me on genetics being the thing i get i get real real squeamish and and this may not sound like a big issue to a lot of people but i mean we're talking potentially about like a i don't even this has got to be like a billion dollar industry right now of like oh, yeah. Yeah. selling selling people things based on you know their 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 act1 gene and they're you know you're never gonna make the olympics because you haven't you might as well just stop training because <laughs> you're never gonna be an olympic sprinter in this cross-sectional study uh and so it's just it's really um I, I actually looked at so i had i had you know so i do some work with um some formula one drivers and, I, and this came up with one of the coaches there's a question about about this so i applied the same so it's not in the paper but i applied the same um you know, process to ACTN3, right? Which is supposed mm -hmm. to predict, um, you know, power and response to, to training. Um, and the data is so variable. The error bars are so huge in the papers that are looking at this that, that like, they didn't even use the right statistics to measure the difference between groups, right? So then even to start with, you don't even know if there's an effect there because the, the like the phenotype is it, and the response to training is, is so variable from person to person. Like even people who are saying, oh, this paper says that there's a difference here. That paper doesn't even say that because they don't understand their data properly. Um, so anytime this stuff comes up, um, you have to go back to the paper. You have to actually look at what, what data is there, how like you are the people they're studying, did they actually even do the study correctly? And in a lot of cases, they just they just didn't. So, um, yeah, it's super super interesting. And and in I, I can't find a single gene where I'm like really really concerned that that it has a dominant effect on phenotype. Yes, and you're talking. You're not talking about like one gene diseases, like you know, like PKU. You're talking about yeah, the, these these like MTHFR, MTR, all these methylation genes that everybody gets worried about. Yeah. And then, and, and then you, we also emailed, I think another one that's, that's pretty like, I, I would, I get worried because I think that this is ironic, right? That, that, that even that statement, um, the, my biggest, my biggest beef with, with funk med is the selling of the, like the cells, the selling of stuff that's just sciencey enough. And that's, that's just to me unethical. Um, and, and it, it rubs me the wrong way. And then the other thing that that gets me is like this air of omission, or just just not being aware that th this is not a thing, right? And and then you scare people. And so that's what that's what seems to be happening with a lot of these genes. Definitely methylation, but the big one that people that that in the meta in the current medical model there's kind of this debate of if they should even tell people and that's APOE3 and yeah. four, APOE3 and four. Yeah. And that's, that's, and we did talk about this on email and that's probably like, I, I just said that there's no gene that I'd really be concerned about. And that's one that maybe starts to sneak into significance. But the, um, if you look at the different studies, so APOE4 is the one you're worried about, particularly in terms of Alzheimer's disease. 
risk. And there isn't. And, and truth- these are like, we're talking like, if you're an APOE 4.4, like 11 times, and some of them have found like 20x. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So up to 20x. And the, the, but the thing that I always come, like, I come back to, and this question hasn't been answered perfectly, but the thing I always come back to is, what's the, what's the gene environment interaction? And when, when you have, yes, so APOE4 seems to accelerate the neuronal response to injury and neurodegeneration in the face of injury. But we know that the modern environment continuously provides neurological insults, um, be they from chronic stresses, hyperglycemia being one of them, um, you know, loss, you know, loss of proper hormonal function, um, which acts as a, you know, a neurotrophic factors, um, systemic insulin resistance, also a big one because you're not having these, the right, you know, insulin acts as a trophic factor in the, in the central nervous system. When in that kind of setting, in the, in the setting of the modern Western diet, those inputs which cause like continuous neurological insults, then APOE4 certainly seems to accelerate um, the risk of dementia. But in hunter-gatherer populations, it doesn't. So mm. yes, um, it, it seems to be a real risk factor if somebody is, is living true to the current modern environment. Um, but if you're somebody who's managed to engineer something that looks more like um, uh, an ancestral environment, and that can just mean that you, you move, you retain some muscle mass, you eat something res- resembling a real food diet, you have some kind of stress management, uh, process you expose yourself to light when it's light outside and dark when it's dark outside that kind of stuff you have some social connection in that setting it may be that apoe4 doesn't really matter that much anymore and again i am conjecturing on this point um but it's just worth remembering that the population that these snips are being studied in is the population where 99 percent of people have suboptimal metabolic health and or are overweight and or have a chronic disease and or are on one or more medications right that's the average american adult so that's the setting in which these risks are being tested so i have a feeling that most of that excess risk disappears if you control those factors but that requires hard work on the on the part of the individual um so so again like that that is maybe a reason for those people to be more stringent in their lifestyle modification um if they're willing and interested to do that the one thing that Again, I mentioned when we were emailing back and forth, the one thing, if, if I was an APOE4 carrier, either heterozygote or homozygote, I would not do fight sports or play f- football. Yeah, don't get hit in the head. Don't get hit in the head. Because though that, that is, it has a reasonable amount of human evidence for it that when they've looked at CTE, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, the people who are APOE4 carriers seem to require fewer hits to the head, fewer concussions, but end up having worse pathology. Um, so yeah, that, that's the, and then, but that just, it's, it's the same as everything else, right? If you protect your brain from a, both a lifestyle, you know, and other health standpoint, then how much excess risk does APOE4 give you? You know, maybe not that much. And the hard part is we're never going to see those research trials because that is, those are so hard to run. We're talking about longitudinal mortality data yeah. and, and then you have, which is, which is observational in nature. But you would, you would essentially have like this case control model where you would have, you know, these people with the Western diet and APOE44 died this. It wouldn't be that complex of a study to run, but it's just so long and going to take so much. I guess it wouldn't even take that much money. It would just, you just have to follow a large amount of people. Um, and then you also have in that study, you're going to have, you don't really, that's kind of a cool study because you, you wouldn't even be worried about the healthy user bias because you'd be, you'd almost be taking this convenience sample of all these people that do these things versus yeah. the, and so then you, you kind of have this heterogene, heterogeneity of, of samples. And then you can, you could, you would just see, you know, which, what's the risk of, what's the prevalence of Alzheimer's. The problem is, is that 1% of the population is just so hard to find. <laughs> yeah. There's just, and it's just, there's just fewer and fewer of them nowadays. And in reality, the people who, you know, and this is where, and this is kind of where the diet wars are, are, are taking off at the moment is, you know, people talking about whether uh, a carnivore based diet or a plant based diet is better for, you know, personal health and all this kind of stuff. And in reality, the, the kind of person who wants to know that answer, they just, they haven't existed until now. The kind of person who is 
you know, conscious about their stress and their sleep and their movement and their diet um, in a way that's sort of evidence-based and well constructed in the modern environment just those people haven't really existed to, to be to be tested until you know the last few years so sadly you kind of have to do the best with what you what you've got and you know we just that that population is, is is so small at the moment and be super like i've found those people are very um they're very flippant and they're very easily manipulated in terms of like you can know like someone can sell them this genetic test that says, okay, you, you're, you're best, you do best on a plant-based diet or you're going to do best with high intensity interval training. I'm like, dude, there's no way that your genetic can tell you that nope. zero, zero <laughs> way. Um, but they seem those, those type of people like make like you might quote unquote, like label them as biohackers. Um, they sent, they tend to be, they tend to move around a lot and then they, they just tend to be very, very, just set in their ways once they get something that works for them. Um, and that, and and that's, and that's tough to deal with. But if, if you are, I think the, 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 if this APOE four, four thing, if you have that, if you are an APOE three, four and an APOE four, four, you, you really do want to take this. I think you, because Alzheimer's is, is 100% the scariest thing for me. Like give me, give me a heart attack. We've, we've talked about that. Like just give me a heart attack when I'm 80 and let me just go fast. Yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas Alzheimer's, you're talking, you know, a decade of people having to take care of you. Um, and, and it's just a slow decline. And so that's, if you are, if you do have that risk factor. And, and so what I see a lot is you, you see, you see it in family, you see it in families, right? So they have, they know they have an ApoE 4.4 and then one of their parents got Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, and, and their parents lived, you know, they lived through that industrial revolution. They lived, they lived that Western lifestyle. Um, and so you can potentially spin that around. We don't know, but that's the play regardless. Like you got to do it. Yeah. I think, you know, if you're, if you're playing the odds, you know, the, the, and, and particularly knowing that the, the, the width of the, the risk for something like being an APOE 4.4 is from like maybe three to four X up to 20 X, depending on the study. But that also tells you that you have a huge amount to play with right in terms of how much extra risk you really do have and all of that's going to come down uh to lifestyle and the environment and the things that we know are required for human health are all the things that we've mentioned already so you have a huge amount of potential leeway and ability to dramatically reduce your risk but it's all going to come back to those same basic lifestyle factors so so everyone I have really, really, uh, really good news that you're going to be excited about. I took my glucose again while uh, Tommy was on his uh, his, his deer tribe, and uh, it was it's at 87. So we're back. We're back. Boom! Again. Look Boom. at that. Two hours after 140 grams of carbohydrates, 87. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, bam. Uh, so Tommy's coming down in March. If, if you guys just didn't realize from that that banter, um, the that I don't. There's not a lot of things that there. I get pretty excited about stuff. That's not true. But one of the things that gets me gets me really really excited is having contextual scientific thoughts and and having a lot of people in the room that have different viewpoints and different histories and different specialties because that's when cool things start to happen. Um, it's like oh, I never thought of it that way. Um, and then they and then that goes down the rabbit hole. And and one of the that's what that's my goal. Uh, with these with these march retreats is to kind of create more of a lab type environment and and that's Tommy's going to be there for all the week one for funk men and nutrition week and then the attendees are going to be presenting and then our goal is to have these these types of scientific talks throughout the week um, and so I'm super excited about it and I'm I'm really honored that that you're coming and that you're going to be there um, and just you know just just honored that you're you're a piece of this bro research puzzle man so um, so thank you for all that you do. Thank you for taking the time to, to come on um, and chat with me on a, a, what day is it? Random Thursday. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know what day it is anymore with the baby. <laughs> it's wild. Um, but thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Any, anything that you want to say anywhere you want to point, point and direct people to, to get a hold of you? Um, well, first to say, uh, it's, it's a huge pleasure as, as always. And I'm super excited to come back, um, come back to the jungle and, and hang out with uh like-minded and differently minded people like you said and that's the that's definitely the fastest way to learn and i know that you're encouraging people to 
you know, regardless of their background, you know, make the jump and do some research and present it in a, in a, in a friendly environment so that everybody learns. And yeah, I'm really excited to be a part of that. Um, but other than that, I recently, I didn't, my wife did. My wife, Elizabeth, recently remade my website, drragnar.com. Uh, you can you can head over there. It's mostly going to be the podcast that I've been on recently, so this one will go up there, um, and some other ones that I've been on. Um, and then at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram, occasionally get some love, so you might see me there. It's either there's some there's some science, there's me lifting stuff, and then there's pictures of my dogs. So who wouldn't want that combination, really? Um, yeah, strong. Uh, wow, you're, dude, you're almost at a thousand followers. I'm dude, getting put in that work. Uh, <laughs> are you, uh, last question, are you, I refer, I, I refer you um, clients that kind of, that I know fit into your, your wheelhouse. Are you currently taking on one-on-one -on -one clients? Yeah, uh, occasionally. Um, it's usually... Uh, at the moment, I don't have a good uh, setup for ordering lab tests because I'm just kind of doing some some freelance coaching because I'm basically a full-time academic nowadays. Um, but if people have some test results or a background of whatever that they would like to just discuss with me, and I'm very much a, uh, let's have a look, let's have a go. Um, you know, by the time people come to me, it's usually super complex and it, you just end up sort of iterating figuring stuff out as you go. So I will, will never pretend to have all the answers, but if people are in that kind of scenario and they just want another mind to, to bounce ideas off of, then, then yeah, I, I am doing some, some one-on-one -on -one coaching. So you heard it guys. If you have your 23 and me raw data, <laughs> Tommy Wood is your guy. Just go to him, send him, send him your genetic genie outputs. Uh, and he will tell you exactly what you need to do. Um, yeah, I just, 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 just drag it to that little trash icon in the middle of <laughs> and go for a walk. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, I appreciate you. Uh, and, uh, and we'll be, we'll, it's, it's close. We're like two, I'll, I'll see you in like four to five months. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs>